This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hi, and welcome to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist, and I've practiced in Fayetteville, Arkansas for over 20 years. In fact, 27 years this year. I can't believe it, but I'm delighted you're here. Before we get started, I made the slightly audacious request last time to leave me a review on Amazon for Perfectly Hidden Depression, my new book, or here on the podcast at Amazon or wherever you listen. And some of you did that, and I so appreciate it. In fact, on Amazon, here's a review from Duchess. I found the book very easy to read and loved that it contains so many real and relatable stories. Perfectionism is no picnic, and even if you don't see yourself in the book, you will no doubt think of other friends and loved ones that suffer from Perfectly Hidden Depression. I believe the book has the potential to help a lot of people. Thora said, I listened to her podcast. She does a great job in explaining perfectly hidden depression, which I have. It's nice to know finally that there's a reason for my depression. And someone else, Two Westies, said, it's a great book and helps you feel insight and where to start your personal journey. I cannot thank these reviewers enough. It means all the world to me that you've taken some time out of your day, not only to read the book, but to leave a review. And the audacious request was that I wanted to get up to 100 reviews, at least in the near future. And I would so appreciate it if you're reading the book. It doesn't have to be complicated or complex. Just a simple review would be wonderful. And so let's move on to today's episode. I've entitled it The New Evidence of What Makes Therapy Effective, but today we're going to cover two frequent questions, really frequent, I get from people just like you or maybe you, how to find a therapist first and how you know a therapist is right for you. The title of the episode has new in quotes because there's a huge study that we'll talk about that came up within the last couple of years that found exactly what I learned in grad school, but it's touted as new info. But hopefully their findings will paint what a really good therapeutic relationship looks and feels like to you. It is exciting information, actually. And our listener email today is from a young woman who used the speak pipe feature, and I'd love for you to do that. You can find it in the show notes, who left me a voicemail telling me that she's in a relationship with someone who seems very depressed. He had a difficult childhood. He's a child of divorce. And he has a mom who's also depressed and sees the world very negatively. Her question is about how he sees her actions as intentionally malicious. The listener doesn't know what to do and is asking for advice. She loves him, but feels blamed irrationally and seen through overly distrustful eyes. So I'll do my best to answer her question. But here we go with the 169th episode of Self Work. One of the top 10 questions I receive from people is really two questions, how to find a therapist and how you know that that therapist is right for you. And when you think about how therapists are depicted in movies, it's no wonder that there's confusion and even distrust. Everyone from Robin Williams to Bob Newhart to Barbara Streisand to more recently, 
Steve Carell and Lisa Kudrow and Edie Falco. There have been a lot of renditions of therapist. Now, we're used to seeing medical doctor shows where either the doc comes up with some miracle correct diagnosis at the last minute, or all of them can't wait to get each other in bed or just skip the bed. The supply closet will do. And yet we still trust doctors to a great extent. Partially, I think, because most people aren't going to go to a party and talk about what their therapist told them like they might talk about their medical doctor. Then therapy itself may lie more victim to whatever the media has to say about the profession. Frankly, most of the therapists in movies or on TV are pretty awful. I watched the recent Oscar-nominated film Marriage Story the other day and was once again disappointed in the betrayal of a social worker who had to come to a home visit. She's supposed to be there to observe the father's relationship with his son. And it's true that the father completely lost it, cutting himself badly by accident and he was so nervous. But the actress who played the evaluator acted like a little mouse, sat there during the evaluation saying next to nothing. She didn't even really lead the whole experience and then ran out as soon as she got her chance. Other therapists are portrayed having sexual relationships with their patients or inviting them to their home. That kind of unethical treatment can happen, and in fact, even criminal treatment, and it can cause a lot of damage. But there are a lot of very ethical therapists out there, and most sessions would make a boring movie. (laughs) There are meaningful moments for sure, but trudging through depression or trying to do trauma work is far from easy. In a minute, we'll talk about how you can tell if your therapist is right for you. But first, let's quickly review how to find one in the first place. You probably hang out with people who share many of your values. So asking others is probably the best option. The obvious hurdle is in the revelation that you're seeking therapy. But you might be surprised by just who knows who that went to therapy and really liked their therapist, who's on an antidepressant and you never knew it, something like that. You know, I'm always honored when a previous client refers another person to me. But if that's too difficult for you to ask, Certainly turn to your primary care physician, your lawyer, your pastor, anyone who you already have a trusting relationship with. And realize all therapists or the clinics where they work have websites. And most are set up where you can read about the therapist, see how they talk about what they do, what degree or experience they actually have. Realize there are different licensures for therapists. I went to grad school and got a PhD, which is actually a doctorate in philosophy, But it also means that I did my own unique research and reported on it in a dissertation. But there are PsyDs who go to grad school but never get a dissertation. You can get a master's and become an LPC or a marriage and family therapist. Or you can go to social work school and get either a bachelor's where you can work in an entry-level position or a master's and become an LCSW where you can have a solo or independent practice. All of these people are therapists. Not all are psychologists, but all are therapists. You add psychiatry in there that, of course, are medical doctors. And all these trainings stress different things. But I would stress that just like two people can go to med school and come out as different medical doctors, no two therapists coming from the same school are going to be identical. So where else can you go? You can go to professional organizations to obtain a list of therapists. Larger cities are going to have psychological associations or social work associations where you can receive a list of providers. Your insurance company will offer a list of their preferred providers. Psychology Today runs a therapist locator service where therapists do pay to be listed 
And it's a solid fee. So if someone is there, they're at least putting in some money for marketing. There are rating services, Google reviews, HealthNet reviews. Every state has a licensing board where you can get information on someone's licensing status. Have they ever lost it? And if so, why? Now, in this age of portals and online calendars, you may somehow get the message that you're not allowed or you can't talk with a potential therapist before meeting with them. So I happened to check this out on one of my best friend's websites. She recently created a new clinic and had all kinds of lawyers helping her, and she did everything by the book. And I see that you can either make an appointment outright where you wouldn't talk to the therapist, or all the therapists have their own private and encrypted numbers. That means it's safe. So you can begin to assess your therapist from the very beginning and see if they are a good fit. Now let's talk for a second about online therapy services. There's BetterHelp, Talk Therapy, Regain. In your show notes, I have some ratings of the top 10. And actually, I'm talking to BetterHelp right now to see if I want to collaborate with them in any way. And so I'm trying out their therapists. My first session The therapist was very proactive, asked good questions, and was ready with ideas to address my issue. What I talked about was a panic attack that I had several years ago on the highway, which was quite unusual for me, although I've had panic disorder. So I may have more information on that in a bit. I'm trying my second therapist in a week or so. But research done shows that online therapy can be very helpful, and it's much less expensive. And you have more access to your therapist. Their hours are broader as they have weekend and evening hours. Not every therapist, but they filter your requests and give you therapist selections based on your answers. I was also very pleased to see lots of things that would address an emergency situation. Now, there's several other pragmatic things to expect in good therapy, but you know what? You can listen to my very first podcast and be kind because it was my first right out of the chute. That's episode 001 to get that information. Now let's talk about what you want to look for in a therapist. I took an article from the American Psychological Association that talked about this huge meta-analysis done by the APA task force. What a meta-analysis is, it means that they've objectively analyzed hundreds of studies, and they were studying therapeutic outcome, what was really important to the success of the therapy. And what they found, the relationship between patient and psychologist not only matters, it matters a lot. I quote Dr. John Norcross, Anyone who dispassionately looks at effect sizes can now say that the therapeutic relationship is as powerful, if not more powerful, than the particular treatment method a therapist is using. We now know that some of these therapeutic elements not only predict, but probably cause improvement. So basically, he's saying it's things about the relationship that make therapy powerful, perhaps even more than the treatment modality used, whether it be cognitive behavioral or family systems or talk therapy or EMDR, whatever. A good relationship, the research finds, is essential in helping the client connect with, remain in, and get the most from therapy. A Dr. Horvath says, It's primary in the sense of being the horse that comes before the carriage, with the carriage being the intervention. So what's going on here? I wasn't surprised by these findings, because actually about 25 years ago when I was in grad school, they learned the same thing. But this has been a more recent analysis And I think it says something very important. You've got to find someone you trust. 
Now let's talk about the seven specific things that this huge study showed were the factors for the most successful therapeutic outcome. And one of the major ones was collaboration. Again, this list comes from the American Psychological Association's magazine, Monitor. First off, for therapy to be demonstrably effective, as they say, sounds like a psychologist, doesn't it? There has to be an alliance. What does that mean? You have to build an effective working relationship with your patient or patients defined by the quality and strength of the relationship. Now, that's a bunch of gobbledygook, and <laughs> but a good example of this would be if you were the patient and you jotted down something to make sure you talk about it in therapy, or do you wonder what your therapist might think about something? Do you look forward to talking about a topic or an experience with your therapist? What that shows, if you do, it means you're allied with them. You're on the same team. Sometimes this takes a little while. Recently, I've had a patient who I just wasn't feeling that sort of alignment with, and I realized that I wasn't listening well enough. She's someone with a lot of energy, and in some ways to meet her in that energetic place, I think I was forgetting that I needed to be a safe space for her. And the quieter I've gotten, the more she's talked. And I think the more allied we feel. The second factor is that kind of collaboration. You work together with your patient on the treatment process so that you're on the same page. One big shift in psychotherapy in recent years is toward what's called greater mutuality. The notion that psychotherapy is a two-way relationship in which the therapist and client are equal partners in the therapy process. No more or very little lying on the couch with no feedback. This has been a significant transition because certainly when I was in graduate school in my first couple of years, I was taught more of that traditional model to stay very anonymous and almost not exactly aloof, but certainly not to use any of my own personal experiences in therapy. The longer I was in grad school, however, that began changing slowly. And since I've been blogging, I'm certainly not anonymous to my patients. And here in town, some people know my husband or my son who come see me. But of course, no one knows that I'm working with a patient unless that info comes from them. Now, make sure your therapist doesn't go overboard with this sharing. I actually had a patient tell me one time that she stayed in therapy with another therapist because that therapist seemed to feel better after sessions. That's just wrong. The focus should be on you. The third factor is, is there goal consensus? What this means, is there an agreement on the goals and expectations of therapy? I typically ask my patients maybe three or four sessions in, how is this going for you? Are you seeing your way through what you wanted or what you came in for? Now, in a first session, I've also laid out what I see or what goals make sense to me, and we talk a little bit about it at the end of the session. But I want to check in with them. Maybe we're going in a direction that doesn't make sense. Basically, you want to ask questions and have a conversation that you can both talk over where you're headed and is it helpful. The fourth one is about group therapy, and they talk about having cohesion, where there's a positive bond between all members of a psychotherapy group. Right now, I don't run groups, but I know that's very important. I ran them in Dallas. I just haven't had the physical space to do so here in Northwest Arkansas. The fifth is empathy. And empathy is a sensitive understanding of the patient's feelings and struggles and seeing those struggles from the patient's point of view. 
One of my own pet peeves is when a therapist calls a patient's reaction resistance instead of first wondering if their own technique or stance is getting in the patient's way. Sometimes you've just given them something that's too hard or you've asked them to go too fast. Sometimes you need, as the therapist, to break a goal way down so that the patient is successful with a small step, and then you move on to the next. So you've got to have empathy and understand what's going on with them from their perspective, not your own. Now, this sixth one I'm not too good at. They say collecting and delivering client feedback. And they define this as using feedback systems to gauge how a patient is doing and using the information to tailor treatment accordingly. This relationship factor has been shown in control trials to cause positive outcomes. You know, I don't give people inventories. I don't ask them to fill out something in the first session telling me how depressed they are, how anxious they are. It's not that those things are bad and they can give you a very tangible sense of where the person is but I actually just use my own clinical interview for that. But I could send out anonymous forms asking people to tell me how effective the therapy was. And I've had my eye on doing that, and I never have. So that's not good on me. Hopefully the seventh one I do, and it's positive regard and affirmation. You want to prize and support your patients regardless of their behavior, attitudes, or emotions. You know, I might just call this, you want to like them. You're trying to understand their feelings, but you also support them, not to the point of never confronting them, but understanding and having regard for who they are as people. You know, I have a somewhat funny story in grad school. I was about to get out, and all my colleagues had chosen one sort of medium or treatment strategy, and I had not. And I told my supervisor that I was worried about that. I said, my strategy is to kind of see what people's strengths are and then try to lead them to where they connect with them again. And she just started laughing. She said, well, that's a good strategy. You know, one of the worst examples of someone who I really don't think supports their patients is Dr. Phil. Dr. Phil tells people what to do. He gives them direct advice. It's not that a good therapist never says what they think. But it's probably couched in terms of, it might be helpful to think about, or it seems you're living in fear. As I often say to my own patients, my job is to do myself out of a job. I don't want the reins of their lives in my hands. I want to help them pick their own back up. So I hope these factors are important to you. Those are the ways you should feel about any therapist that you choose. And I have to say that after years of doing therapy, I can look back and say that the people with whom I've worked who seem to make the most progress are definitely the people who trusted me and who worked along with me on their goals, whatever those were. Good luck to you finding that someone you can collaborate with, who you like, who you think they know what they're doing, and together you make a great team. Here's our listener email for today, and she used the SpeakPipe feature, which again is a voicemail that only I hear at first, and then I answer it here on the program. I hope more of you will use that. Dr. Margaret, thank you very much for doing what you're doing. I really appreciate you. And my question is about being in a relationship with a person who has, I think, some sort of a depression and just being raised up with 
parents who are divorced and I can say depressed and just not in a very good situation growing up. So I am in a relationship with somebody like that and it's been three years and we broke up once. We have a lot of issues. I think he many times like he assumes that I have a negative intent when I say something, when I do something. Little stuff, they're big deals for him. And I've been really struggling with that. I, I really love him. I really want to be with him. That's the problem that we've got. And I know where it's coming from. I've seen his mom and like the fact that she's super depressed and she doesn't have a lot of friends. And he has that pattern. He's just repeating those patterns. And he doesn't really get a ton of help from therapies and stuff like that. So that's my question. Thank you very, very much again. It feels terrible for someone, especially someone you love, to believe that you're being intentionally hurtful to them. And if they're what's called projecting what they've experienced with someone else onto you, it can truly feel like you're trapped with no way to defend yourself. I knew a therapist once that regularly had their patients draw pictures of a toxic parent's face onto the back of a paper plate. That parent had been harsh, rejecting, or even cruel. Then they give the plate to their partner. And as they're talking, when the partner felt as if they weren't hearing them anymore, but projecting that toxic parent's voice onto what they were saying, they'd hold up the plate in front of their face. It was a good exercise that might have helped both people understand why resolution was so difficult. It reminds me of that commercial that most of us have probably seen in the U.S. with the lady who has the smiling face on her plate in front of her face and she walks around with that. So... It's kind of like that. However, in this case, it doesn't sound as if the depressed partner is taking much responsibility for what he may be doing, unless somehow this listener is coming across more harshly than she realizes. But from what she describes, her intent is far from intentionally doing emotional harm. We all occasionally hurt one another, but I say to my own patients that if one or both of you begin to feel like your partner is your enemy who plots to hurt you rather than your friend who may accidentally do so, then you need to take a look at that. All that will lead to is defensiveness and blaming and criticism and loneliness. So perhaps an idea for this listener is to do this, to wait until no one is mad or overly tired, neither one of them, and then say, I'd like to talk to you about what I'm feeling is being created by the two of us when we fight. Are you willing to do that? Notice she said the two of us. If they say yes, you have their permission, which can be big. So she continues. Sometimes I feel as if you're not hearing me, but I feel really confused when you accuse me of trying to hurt you. I know that that was your relationship with your mom. I'm wondering if you've ever wondered if some of what you experience with your mom influences the way you hear me. I'd like to talk about it. And if I'm doing something to cause that, then I want to change. I want to look at that. But I'd also like for you to consider your part. Now, maybe all of that sounds overly therapy-like, but I'm advising to approach carefully and with his permission, then talk mostly about yourself, not him. Ask for information, but also voice an expectation. You can always ask him to join you in couples therapy, and there, with the help of a therapist, perhaps both of you can see whatever pattern there is between the two of you. And if he won't join you in that discussion and hopeful change, then you might have another decision to make, even though you love this man. 
because this is probably behavior that can't be tolerated over time or certainly will be very destructive. Good luck to both of you. Thank you so much for being here. You know, I was talking to someone about doing self-work and what it means to me to have an audience here on the podcast. I was looking at some of my stats this morning, and now I'm listened to in every state in the country, which is wonderful, and of course, many countries internationally. I welcome all of you. I understand that your culture may be very different from our culture here in the United States. So some of what I say, you may need to translate into your own culture. But I'm delighted for you to be here and invite you to send me ideas for podcasts at AskDrMargaret at DrMargaretRutherford.com, or you can send me your questions or comments, and obviously you can use SpeakPipe as well. You can subscribe at DrMargaretRutherford.com, and if you do, you'll get a weekly newsletter, that's it, I promise, that includes both my weekly podcast and a blog post. So it's a very easy way of keeping in touch with me. Of course, you can subscribe wherever you listen. I'd love that as well. You can join me at Facebook.com. I now have a Facebook Live on there, pretty near the top, that I did for Mental Health on the Mighty, and it's had almost 30,000 views, which is just shocking. It's more than I've ever had. It's on panic and anxiety. It's about 40 minutes long, so you might want to hop over to Facebook.com slash Dr. Margaret Rutherford and watch it. I also have a Facebook closed group, which is Facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. That's facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. But make sure you answer the opening questions. That's the key to get in the group. Thank you again for your ratings and reviews. Let's get 100 on Amazon. (laughs) Maybe I'll throw a big party if we do. (laughs) Thank you so much for being here and take very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self-Work.